This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so excited about today's episode. This one is interesting. You know what? This is, there's a couple things to say about this. First off, it's a, our guest is Cal Salem. Yes. He's a counselor for the Squamish Nation and their spokesperson. And right. he's on to talk about the Senac lands, which is just on the south side of the Burrard Bridge. 11 acres. 11 acres, huge development, breaking ground soon. 57 stories. Yeah. There's I mean, 11 towers. There's 6,000 units. Um, I think it's around 70% purpose-built rental. So super interesting project. And and the most interesting component or one of the most interesting components is that it is under federal jurisdiction, this land. You don't got to deal with the city. Lands. You don't so got to deal with the city. It is it is a fascinating story. It's one that you're going to want to listen to for sure. Yeah. You know what? And there's a few things. One, uh, they don't have to deal with the city, which is interesting, or right. at least deal with the city on the on the big questions. Yeah. Two, they've partnered with, with West Bank, but as Kel Salem makes it clear, the Squamish Nation thinks of West Bank as a long-term rival. Like they are getting in the development game in, in a big way. And third, uh, this is almost like like a, a like a lab, right? It's a lot of people talk about the need for more housing, more purpose-built housing, uh, the housing crisis, right. and just how challenging it is to get anything done in the city of Vancouver. Well, this is – and they're breaking ground quick. Like it's this challenging is, density. 
Yeah, this is a lab to see how this works to add a huge number of units uh, in a prime location. Uh, so stay tuned for this conversation, yeah. Cal Salem. I, I can't wait. It, it's great. And he d- gives long-term history, uh, talks about how this fits with reconciliation, if at all. So stay tuned and, for and, that. And I, I want to – we're going to send a link to the website as well um, for the Synac development. But talk about – forward design. Uh, it's, oh, it's, it's unbelievable. It's a beautiful project and it's going to be super interesting. It's going to transform the skyline for Vancouver. Absolutely. So it's it's an interesting one. Um, Matt, what else do we have before we, we get to our conversation with Kel Salem? Okay. So we got a few things to cover. First, this podcast is sponsored by Oakland Realty. Yes. This is our brokerage. Phenomenal place to work. Couldn't think of a better brokerage to be at. If you are just starting out your career you're an aspiring agent, you've been in the game for a while, but you're feeling, you know, like things are going great or not so great, consider Oakland. Consider yeah. a change here. It, it, I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. Oakland.com slash join VRP 2020 for your special gift. Sure. Yeah, it's a huge one. It's, it's a, a huge, huge gift and special gift. <laughs> it's worth sitting down with Oakland for sure. Uh, we, we, we love them. They're a great brokerage. And yeah, head over to Oakland dot com slash join type in vrp 2020 and you will get your gift um matt we also have like last week we sat down and we talked about selling your home is it the right time to sell and the one thing that came out of that is that we've got two fantastic resources but really it's just something called sold plan the sold plan that's right we have the is there sold a plan. The in there i didn't i didn't realize that well but i'm it? trying to remember if it's it's patent pending i can't remember <laughs> if we added the in there uh, but uh it's the, the start on launch day plan that's the acronym but it's it is the sold plan it has not only a perfect timeline in order for launching your property but it's also got an exhaustive checklist that is really what you need to do before you actually launch and this is what's super powerful Absolutely. And this is not just like a couple things to check boxes. Uh, this is this, when you say exhaustive, um, I was exhausted. You were exhausted. <laughs> after I, <laughs> I was exhausted <laughs> after reading it. Yeah. No, it is, it is. It's, uh, it's very instructional and it is a great guide. And I think if you're thinking about selling, you need to have this. It is a great resource. We're, again, we're sending it out on Tuesday of next week. So if you want a copy of the sold plan, really just get in touch. You can email us at info at com and just type in seller's guide or sold plan and we will send it out to you. And thank you so much for everybody who's reached out. And like Adam said, you will get your copy on Tuesday. That's Tuesday, June 16th. Last but not least, before we uh, cut to our talk with Cal Salem, we have a quick conversation here with mortgage broker extraordinaire Ray Macklem. Right. He's talking CMHC changes, how this impacts a market, rates going down. Uh, short conversation with Ray. We'll cut to that right now. Okay, so we're here with Ray Macklem. He's a mortgage broker with uh, the Mortgage Hub and Dominion Lending Centers. How you doing, Ray? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Good, good. And of course, uh, people who listen to the show will know Ray. He's past guest, fan favorite, been on a number of times. Ray, we've uh, asked you back here for just a quick check-in. There's been some big changes, or I'd like to hear your uh, take on it. Big changes with CMHC. Can you outline those and... Uh, and describe kind of how that's going to impact buyer's power? 
Yeah, definitely. So, so CMHC, uh, in a what is being a universally maligned move by economists and and mortgage brokers around uh, the country here, have have tightened up their requirements. So, uh, up until July first, borrowers are able to qualify using debt service ratios, which is basically the proportion of your income that can go towards your expenses. Um, up to 39% of, of gross debt service ratio, which is just your housing costs, and then 44% of your total debt service ratio, which lumps in credit cards, car leases, other payments that you're, you're obligated to make. They've reduced those from 39% and 44% down to 35% and 42%. And really what that means in terms of, of dollars and cents or percentage is it reduces people's affordability or the amount they can qualify for by roughly 10 to 11% on average. And it depends on a lot of different factors, but ballpark 10 to 11%. Um, so if you're at the high end of those debt service ratios for qualification, your affordability has just been cut back with CMHC by, by roughly 10 to 11%. And is this just for insured mortgages, correct? So somebody who's putting less than 20% down? Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and they also have increased the credit scoring requirements uh, from 600 to, to now borrower has to be at least 680. So, so debt service ratios come down and credit scoring goes up. So making it a little bit more difficult for, for home buyers to qualify at the higher end. So as uh, as some of our listeners may know, there's there's a couple other insurers in Canada other than the CMHC, Genworth and, and Canada Guarantee. Uh, are, are they following suit or how, how is this going to play out across the board? They, they are not following suit. So yeah, so neither Genworth or Canada Guarantee will adopt CMHC's new guidelines. Um, they are going to stick. They're, they both issued press releases effectively saying our underwriting policies are good. Uh, Canada Guarantee even went so far as to say that they have the lowest loss ratio in the industry, so that includes Denworth and 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 CMHC, and and they feel that that their underwriting criteria is enough of uh, you know a mitigating factor for what what is perceived higher risk borrowers with less than twenty percent down. So really, in essence, they're saying we're good, and and a lot of this, you know, is, is an interesting move. A, the timing of, of CMHC's decision with the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and, and making things harder for home buyers where their mandate is to help home buyers is interesting. We're you know, trying to destabilize the market or reduce prices. Um, but it's generally assumed that CMHC, or sorry, Genworth and Canada Guarantee will follow suit. So it's really nice to see them break ranks and, and say, listen, our books are good. We're not going to worry about where you're doing. We're going to keep doing us. So, and just thinking about this, Ray, uh, for can people choose insurers? Like, how does that work? If you're who who is going to use CMHC uh, in in moving forward? If they can go with Genworth or Canada Guarantee, how does that work? Yeah, so in large part, that's determined by the lender uh, based on their their internal systems and, and relationships with those insurers. So the lender, we, we can, as brokers, request insurers in some cases. We don't always necessarily get our way. Um, but CMHC being the larger, people will still continue to use CMHC. Uh, they are the largest of, of the three. Um, now in those situations where we might need to extend the debt service ratios for qualification, at that point, the lender will decide, are we going to ship it to, to Genworth or Canada Guarantee and and have it underwritten there and insured there versus CMHC. So Less discretion. The consumer can't really choose. Um, brokers have some input and influence in that, depending on products. Uh, lender ultimately makes the final decision on where that's going to go. And, and Ray, we just saw one of the uh, one of the big banks here uh, drop a five year fixed rate to one point nine nine percent. Are the fixed rates going down? 
Yeah, last we talked, I guess it was about a month ago, and, and the conversation was quite different. Credit spreads were, were really high, um, a lot of uncertainty in the financial system, um, which caused those credit spreads to rise and, and interest rates to rise as well. And, and now we're seeing the opposite effect. We're seeing the measures of the federal government and the Bank of Canada filter its way through the system, and those spreads are coming down, and, and fixed rates have come down dramatically since we last spoke. It, they would have been around 3%, and now you're seeing you know, HSBC in particular cracked the 2% barrier and others slowly coming down to that as well. We weren't going to name names, but uh, glad you did. Hey, it's <laughs> out there, my friend. No use talking about it. So it's kind of interesting times, right? Like the, under 2% is kind of incredible in terms of, in terms of a rate, uh, which is very attractive to buyers, but the qualification seems at least in part to be tightening up. Uh, how do you think the re- this plays out for the rest of the year? Yeah, I mean, we're we're in this interesting time right now um, where we have been getting back to some semblance of normalcy with shops opening up and uh, the economy kicking back into gear slowly but surely, uh, which provides a lot of confidence. Um, you know, unfortunately, CMHC's announcements uh, might have taken somewhat away from that. But I think the offset to that is Genworth and Canada Guarantee breaking rank and saying, no, we're good, which, which should provide that confidence to home buyers. Yeah, listen, like things, things are okay. So realistically, the way I see it going for the next little while is, is, you know, rates will stay low. I don't think we're going to see any major changes on that side of things until 2022. They'll bounce around a little bit, but rates will continue to stay low as is necessary to keep the economy going. Um, so for the foreseeable future, I think things look pretty good. You know, but this is, we are, keeping in mind we're in the middle of a pandemic, that can all change. Um, but I think fundamentally Canada has shown, in particular D.C., has shown really great resolve in, in, in tackling this thing and, and, and maintaining a pretty level head um, and, and good attitude over, over the course of the last, what, three months now. And Ray, if people want to talk more about this uh, or, or talk to you about uh, financing in any capacity, how, how did they get a hold of you? Yeah, you hit me up at ray at themortgagehub.ca or, or directly myself, 778-968-5278. Okay, well, thanks again for taking the time, Ray. Yeah, always good chatting. My pleasure, guys. Great to catch up. That was an interesting conversation with Ray, Matt. Um, let's cut to our interview now with Kel Salem. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Kel Salem, spokesperson and counselor for the Squamish Nation. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for taking the time today to speak with us. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. So um, maybe, Cal Salem, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a elected counselor for uh, one of the three nations here in Vancouver. I uh, was elected in 2017, serving a four-year term. And we have a unique governing structure where we elect the members, our citizens of our nation elect. Our council and the council chooses two co-chairs and two spokespersons. Uh, so I was appointed by the council as a spokesperson, which really just means that I'm kind of the, the representative voice for the nation externally to the to media and uh, groups uh, outside the nation. Um, and then I've grown up on the North Shore, but I live in Vancouver. And over the last couple of years, through my involvement with uh, my role, I've become very uh, acquainted with the real estate industry, given the, um, the significant holdings and opportunities that my nation is involved in on real estate. 
Was that uh, that process? Uh, it sounds like it's kind of been uh, more recent and kind of undoubtedly pretty fast paced. Uh, how have you found the the real estate industry kind of coming to it? Uh, it sounds like fairly recently. Yeah, I mean, I would say that a lot of it started um, back around 2014 to 2016. The three nations were able to successfully negotiate for uh, a, uh, the purchase of crown lands at Jericho from the federal government. The federal government was was in the process of doing a disposition of lands policy to try and build up some capital to, to pay off debt. And so they were selling off a lot of crown assets across the country. Uh, the nations came together, the three nations came together after many years of disagreement um, and, and shockingly came together and said, we are more likely to win together than we are on our own. And we're able to negotiate with the government uh, something similar to a first right of refusal because it the, the threat of using our Section 35 Aboriginal rights and title to block the sale would prevent the government from being able to see any kind of uh, benefit or profit off of it. So the quicker route for them was to negotiate a vendor take-back agreement with us, which they've done with many other companies around uh, around Canada, where we don't pay the principal cost of the land up front. We pay it after a certain period of time, um, which would allow us to develop those lands to raise the capital um, through the redevelopment to pay off the purchase price, but the purchase price would be locked in at the rate or at the price value of the land at the time of uh, the signing of the agreement. So we successfully did that with the federal government on Jericho. And then uh, not too long after, the provincial government under the BC Liberals also embarked on a similar uh, policy to dispose of uh, provincially owned crown lands and the adjacent Jericho lands were included in that. And so then the, the three nations um, were able to successfully negotiate for those lands to come back to us as well. And so that coupled with um, our, our on-reserve lands, our reserve lands that are also have a huge potential for real estate, some of which are, has already been developed for real estate, but um, mostly through a lease structure, not through a development program. Um, we realized that um, real estate is going to be a huge driver of the economic development for the nation. And so over the last three years, we've really tried to position ourselves to build the capacity to take advantage of that, building and bringing in the right uh, experts to advise us on how to build up a real estate portfolio, and then engaging in the industry um, with the strength of the nation um, really behind it uh, and able to do things that I think a lot of other developers can't do because for a variety of reasons. Um, but ultimately it's been a, it's been a world. Um, it's been a hugely fascinating for me to get an insight into the real estate industry uh, to a very large scale um, and to really understand more of the politics and economics that are going on um, with it. So, Cal Salem, a lot of a lot of people right now are talking about the Sanok development um, right now, and um, clearly that's a, part of the reason we wanted you on the show is is to kind of talk about the process and 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 what you've been experiencing with this uh, with this redevelopment project. 
Can you talk a little bit about the Sanok development and, and maybe even uh, start by giving us a bit of a history of the Sanok lands? Yeah, so Sanok was a village um, of in the community uh, for many, many generations. In the uh, 1870s and 1880s, the federal government had started their process of creating reserve lands where they would uh, survey lands where Indigenous peoples were living and then allocate a certain amount of acres of reserve lands uh, relative to the number of people that were living there. So there was some sort of formula, and it varied from across the country. Some places it was 100 acres per family member because uh, on the prairies, for example, there was a lot more farming and agrarian culture kind of thing. And so you got to the coast and they were a little bit more uh, restrictive um, and it was very small pieces of land. But there were a number of families living at uh, Sanok at the time around Kitts Point. And the surveyors surveyed the land. They allocated a certain percentage of, or a certain um, ratio of land relative to the number of people there. And so you ended up with around um, 60 uh, or 80 acres of, of lands that were set aside as crown-owned Indian reserve lands. Um, the process was a way to alienate the, re- the rest of our lands by placing us on reserves, giving us these uh, small parcels, these kind of postage stamps of, of recognized lands that were set aside for us, but then um, appropriate and, and essentially take uh, all the remaining lands and then carve them up for uh, the private uh, title, uh, fee simple. And so during the early colonization, for example, of BC, uh, the federal government was granting free land to any immigrants who would uh, choose to come to BC. You just had to show up and they would give you land and sometimes they even give you money um, to, to just move here and set up. And so a significant amount of our lands were taken through that process. Uh, the reserve lands were around 80 acres in the uh, 1880s. And then um, around the 1910s, as Vancouver started to expand and grow, once the Canadian Pacific Railway opened, the population of immigrants and settlers into the area just massively ballooned. And then you also had the formation of a number of colonial governments like the city of Vancouver and the city council uh, and also the parks board. And in 1913, the Vancouver Parks Board put in a request to the city of Vancouver and to the province requesting that they remove the indigenous people that were living at Sanok because uh, they wanted to, to, to use the land that was kind of being used at the time uh, near the reserve. And there was a political uh, agenda within the city by some of the political leaders at the time where they really wanted the government to remove all of the Indigenous people that were around Vancouver, including on the North Shore, remove all of the Indigenous people, take the reserve lands away and turn them into private lands to be sold, uh, but relocate all of the, the my people up to Squamish, where we had a number of communities as well. Um, and so they, they were attempting to do that in the North Shore. They were successfully able to do that at Sanak because they had the support of the RCMP, the province, the feds, and the local governments. We're all united in removing the Indigenous people from the land and essentially taking it. The reserve lands had also been shrunk uh, by 1913. Um, there was a number of sales, um, or at the time, the federal government had the authority to just take reserve lands when they wanted. So the provincial government could request lands for uh, public use 
like things like the railway, and the federal government would just take it because there was a paternalistic relationship where Indigenous people were considered wards of the government. We weren't considered persons under the law. So um, in terms of making decisions on behalf, on with regard to our property, the federal government was the the um, the fiduciary that had the responsibility to do that, but they would never include any of our people in those decisions. They could just make it on our behalf. So in 1913, um, a number of families are forcibly evicted from the Sanok community, and a number of them uh, relocate to some of their relatives' uh, communities on the North Shore and up Squamish, um, thereby vacating the land. And then eventually the land got taken over by the National for National Defense during World War II, uh, and it was maintained by national defense for a long time, up until the 1960s, uh, when the federal government started getting leases on the land to the Vancouver uh, Parks Board in the city of Vancouver, which is why you have Vanier Park. And the armory is kind of a holdover from that era. Um, and then in the 90s, um, the CN Rail um, attempted to sell a small little parcel, 11 acres that they had, uh, of the the lands that the government had originally taken from us of the reserve lands. And so they had attempted to do a sale to sell those 11 acres that were next to and adjacent to the Broad Street Bridge. The nation responded to the sale with a lawsuit, um, challenging them to prove that the sale, um, that they actually even had the right of, to, to sell the lands and that the lands even belonged to them because there was no legal sale of the reserve lands um, prior. And ultimately, through the court case, uh, we argued that the lands belonged to the Squamish nation, that they were never sold, uh, and that the nation needed to be compensated for uh, the use of the lands um, over the years. And so through an out-of-court settlement, um, after a lengthy, uh, almost uh, 20-year court battle, um, we negotiated for the 11.7 acres to be returned to the Squamish nation as reserve lands. And for a $98.2 million cash settlement that would be set up as a trust fund for our community members. Um, so that's the lands that are now back in the control of the Squamish Nation. And then given its proximity to downtown and its location, it's always been seen as a ideal site for economic development because it's the probably the, the most valuable piece of real estate property in our territory. Um, given its location. And so over the years, the nation has attempted to work on different types of development proposals for the land. And right now we are proposing a, a master planned development project um, for the site to generate revenue for the Squamish Nation to support the social uh, and economic programs of, of our community. Can, can you talk, Kelsalem, a little bit about... Um that master plan community. I mean, it was. I feel like late last year it was. Uh, it was talked about a lot, but as a lot of our listeners are not going to know too much about uh, about the proposal. Yeah. So the proposal is to build around six thousand units of of housing uh, on eleven towers. Uh, the tallest tower would be around um, fifty six stories, and the smallest tower would be around. 15 or 16 stories, I think. Um, it's a bit of an odd shape of land, but the development plan that's being proposed is really focusing on activating the ground space 
by foregoing of the typical podium and tower structure and instead just utilizing towers that would essentially come down from the sky and, and uh, encounter the ground level where we would activate um, it with a lot of community amenity spaces, um, almost like a park with a number of different uh, communal amenity spaces, inclu- including activating underneath the Berg Street Bridge. Um, and then also including a number of retail opportunities along the edge of the, of the reserve boundaries um, with a type of um, urban design that allows for the roofs of those retail spaces to be uh, included as a part of the ground level park space where people would actually be able to sit on top of the roofs of the buildings um, in green space that um, would, would form part of the park. Um and it's proposed to be a largely rental project, um, between 90 and 70% rental, um, with some possible leasehold strata. Um, and there's still some exploration of possibly some other uses, um, perhaps some office, um, perhaps some other types of amenities that might be included. But um, that's the general concept as, as of right now. Um, there's also a plan to include a certain number of units that will be subsidized for Squamish Nation citizens um, to provide housing for our own people on the development as well. So, Kel uh, Salem, why rental? Rental is a strategic choice for us because we do have other developments that are going to be mostly lease, uh, mostly leasehold strata. So, if you look at a lot of our MST developments. Um, there is some rental and contemplated in some of them, but they are largely lethal strata as well. So when we look at the type of investment that we want to make utilizing our lands, we want to diversify the types of revenue streams that we have. And the, the on-reserve rental provides the largest return for us back to the community with a sustainable source of revenue that would grow over time as we pay down the principal more um, financing that we've taken out to to fund the construction. And so a rental feels like a strategic choice for us because what we're really looking for is we're looking for a long-term sustainable income stream. And uh, rental feels like that's the best way to go. Um, And we feel quite uh, confident that that, that's a, a type of investment that we feel very comfortable that has a low amount of risk to the nation. Uh, relative to other types of developments that we are doing. Um, so we have different kind of streams uh, and going in terms of the type of real estate that we want to do. Um, and this is just one of those many streams. One of the things uh, that seemed to pop up a lot when the uh, the project was proposed, Cal Salem, was, um, you know, just how... Uh, I guess ambitious, but also how dense and and large the the project was, and it kind of, especially for the west side of of the city of Vancouver, um, you know, it it's it, it's hard to get a, a purpose built rental, um, you know, six stories done in in Kitsilano usually, and and this is of course uh, a much larger project. Um, so as I understand it, Sanok is is reserve land under federal jurisdiction, but what role, if any, does does the city of Vancouver play? And and is there any precedent that you know of for for this type of development? Or are we in are are we in uncharted territory? Um. Yes and no. 
there is a lot of development that's happened on reserve lands over the last couple of decades. And there's also been a changing landscape of uh, law and regulation when it comes to the development of reserve lands. So a lot of what we're trying to do right now would not have been possible, say, 20 years ago, because the laws uh, at the time were just not enabling or they were too inst- uh, restrictive. So, for example, um, about a decade ago, the federal government passed the First Nations Fiscal Management Act, which gives First Nations uh, taxation authority on reserve lands. We we set tax rates, mill rates that are comparable to the neighboring jurisdiction or any jurisdiction that is applying property taxes, like the school tax with the province, and the nation apply uh, charges those taxes to residents on our lands, whether they be commercial or residential. So. For some nations who have done residential development, uh, those tenants uh, or those those uh, property owners, they pay their property taxes to the nation, not to the municipal uh, municipality. The nation then uses that tax revenue to pay for the municipal services that they negotiate from the local municipality on things like hydro, police, uh, libraries, um, sewage, uh, etc., and so the, the nation is paying a fee for service. They're collecting the taxes from the, their residents. Um, and so there's a relationship there between the nation, the local municipality, and, and then ultimately their residents. Those types of arrangements weren't possible uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And so there's like changes like that that are really instructive. There's also legislation that was passed at the federal and provincial level um, called the First Nations uh, Commercial and Industrial Development Act, which allows for the province to collaborate with the federal government to develop federal regulations that will mirror provincial law so that um, provincial-like uh, law and regulations can apply on reserve because under the Constitution, lands that have been set aside for Indians, which are reserve lands, are this under the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal government. And so a lot of uh, provincial laws don't apply on reserve lands. Uh, an example of that would be the Residential Tenancy Act. So there is now federal legislation and provincial legislation that enables the development of regulations, like regulations that might mirror the Residential Tenancy Act in the province, which then mirrors uh, almost identically, which then creates a certainty for the market when you're doing things like rental. Or another example would be the Strata Property Act uh, in the province, Again, if we wanted to mirror that and tie all of our, our set of properties into the title office in D.C., there's now legislation that enables that, whereas 20 or 30 years ago, none of that existed. So the tools exist now, which uh, creates a better certainty for our investment um, and also means that for anybody that wants to buy or anybody that's going to rent, um, there's a clarity of, of uh, law and regulation on this and that it can mirror uh, the provincial laws as, as much as possible. Um, but it also means that real estate becomes a huge economic uh, driver, not just on the um, profit of, of rent or sales, but also through the taxation, where the nation would charge our own DCCs, our own CACs, um, our own levies, taxes, uh, etc. And 100% of the, that goes to the nation. And then a portion of that is used to pay for the services that we negotiate from the, the municipality that we're buying services from. Um, but uh, but the, the ratio of, of profit is still significantly going to the nations. So even if even on the uh, strata side, um, 
there is still going to be a revenue stream of taxation coming into the nation just from the taxes that we would collect on any of the strata properties. So it's it, it, there's a number of pieces at play. Um, there is a requirement to work with the city to, to negotiate um, the price uh, for the services as well as, um, I guess, negotiate how the city will work with the development um, company, which is our company, on providing all of the infrastructure, um, the infrastructure to the site, as well as kind of coordination of, of a number of, of um, engineering requirements that are on the roads or lands that are adjacent to our site. So, for example, if we're going to be building that many towers, you think about how many construction vehicles will be going in and out of that site. But they're, they're going to have to go over roads that actually are within the city of Vancouver's jurisdiction. And then that's where their bylaws and their policies around, uh, you know, how construction happens in city property and all that kind of stuff come into play. So there's a number of places where it requires us to work together. Where it doesn't, um, where it is different is that the city of Vancouver does not have any jurisdiction to control the zoning on the property. And so the height uh, and the level of density, the unit sizes, um, the makeup of the project, uh, the city of Vancouver will, will, has no jurisdiction over that. And in addition, the city of Vancouver doesn't collect any of the CACs or um, DCCs uh, from the project. 100% of that would go to the Squamish Nation as the local governments that um, the lands are technically belong to. You know, just just thinking here, Cal Salem, and this is maybe a this is maybe a silly question, but hypothetically, uh, twenty years from now or or ten years from now, somebody living in in a tower is calling. You know, there's a domestic disturbance, and they have to call the. Is it the city police who show up? Yeah. Okay. And so that's where the regulations that we we would theoretically develop, working with the federal and provincial governments, would would um, allow for a site-specific application of provincial law. And then because the city of Vancouver is technically a creature of the province through the Vancouver Charter, um, there could be a way to allow for provincial ordinances or provincial bylaws and provincial services to apply on the reserve lands. There, there, there isn't a hundred percent like it's not a blanket um, exclusion of provincial law on federal lands. It's it's a specific scenario of where provincial law doesn't apply. So the criminal code um, and provincial laws um, do apply on reserve, but it's in specific circumstances regarding uh, what the federal government de- defines as Indians. Um, is where it doesn't apply. So, for example, um, we are required on reserve to charge PST um, in, in commercial sales. We we can't. It's not like the U.S. Uh, with U.S. tribes, where they are completely exempt from having to charge any taxes on reservation lands. In Canada, we are still required to charge PST. We we don't have to charge P or uh, status Indians are exempt from paying the PST. But for everybody else, we still have to pay. And if we don't pay, uh, provincial law still applies. Um, provinces could apply for injunctions or they can investigate businesses. Um, they could uh, sue them for the cost recovery on all those things. So there are a number of areas where provincial law would still apply. And, and so for a lot of the issues that would come up in terms of bylaws and, uh, or not bylaws, w- that would come up in terms of criminal activity or 
uh, anything like that, the, the provincial laws would still apply. Where where there is work to be developed is more on the bylaw side of things. So, for example, the city of Vancouver could have a bylaw that restricts um, construction of um, condo apartments in terms of renovations to certain time periods. You must obtain a, business, uh, a permit to engage in those types of activities. All of that type of stuff is under the jurisdiction of the city of Vancouver through their various bylaws, um, permitting and enforcement divisions. Um, as of right now, none of that would apply on reserve. Um, the nation would either have to create its own bylaws or create a system where the city's bylaws can apply perhaps just on that specific project. So, so in just thinking about that, so thinking about like, say like the FSR, the setbacks, the sight lines, the building code, is there anything currently regulating it then? View corridors. View corridors, yeah. Um, yes and no. Um, there would be there would be a requirement to build things to code, um, both from a market standpoint and then also from a liability standpoint. So it would be in our best interest to build things to proper code, um, you know, in term, and, and follow the the requirements in the typical developments around like engineering sign-offs, um, inspections, um, you know, things like that, because we we're, we're incentivized to build the best call it safe product that we can build because we're ultimately going to be having people wanting to buy into this. Right. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to build a substandard product that then people um, aren't interested in buying into and, and we don't get a return on our investment. Um, there are further kind of, opportunities to develop further regulations that would very clearly apply. So for example, like the uh, FinCETA Act that uh, I had mentioned that allows for um, federal regulations to be created that mirror provincial law. Um, the sites could theoretically create regulations that would mirror provincial law for the site, which creates even further clarity. So now it's not just that we're doing it because uh, uh, voluntarily, we're doing it because there are federal regulations that require us to that we have consented to being created and applied. Um, and they mirror the provincial regulations so that there is a clarity between what regulations are in place. So there's, there's um, mechanisms to accomplish that. Um, on the FSR, sight lines, um, view cones, all of that kind of stuff, none of those things would apply. And this is, I guess, part of the interesting thing about the development is that where we can create harmony or alignment with provincial or civic um, uh, bylaws or regulations. We are very much interested in it, but there are times where we are not interested in mirroring it. Um, the FSR is an example of that. Um, the city's policies around um, the uh, podiums, you know, requirements that they usually require on developments. We have the opportunity to forego some of those things, and sometimes it makes sense from a urban design perspective. And it really is uh, an opportunity for us to do something that the city can't. And I think part of that is because the city can't. The city has a hard time doing exceptions. Um, they're a bureaucracy, and so their instinct is to try and create systems that treat everybody the same. And so they can't offer one developer one type of, of exception. And then, and then when all the other developers are going to come knocking and asking for the same exception. So they try to create policies that says, okay, everybody can, everybody has to play within these rules. The nation is the jurisdiction here and we're doing one development on this site. We might do developments on this site. So we make, we can make the choice to forego some of those things. 
but sometimes it actually makes sense. Um, the the site is awkward for for doing podium structures because of the bridge, and so it actually would be a very kind of dark kind of a, uh, enclosed area if there was a lot of kind of podiums at the ground level. Whereas the idea to kind of do more of an open park space at the ground level just is working with the landscape that we have and and the structures that are currently there. Um, and then yeah, and so that other things like the view cones um, just they wouldn't apply uh, in in this development because that's a city of Vancouver bylaw policy and it's not a Squamish Nation policy and and their jurisdiction doesn't apply on our lands. The, the two things. One, I guess uh, FSR. Just for anyone listening who has no idea what that means, is of course floor space ratio. So how much, how how large the building on on the actual land is, right? Um, I'm just thinking here in terms of. Exceptions. Undoubtedly, the city. Uh, it's kind of an interesting idea that it's yet yeah, it's very hard to give exceptions, and undoubtedly, the city at sometimes probably wants to give exceptions. Um, it's surely not uh, the primary concern for for uh, the nation whether or not this benefits the city. But I think a lot of people are seeing uh, this as as a project that is benefiting uh, a city that has an ongoing housing crisis. What has your feedback been uh, in that regard? Um, I would say that the, there's a, I don't know how many people are going to study what we're doing at Sanok, but there's definitely a huge amount of opportunity to study the impacts of the project and uh, what, what the impacts are going to be on the community and the, and the real estate market. I mean, relative to a number of other things that are obviously impacting the real estate market right now, but um the only reason, I mean, I, I, you know, um, Tom Davidoff made this point on a podcast uh, recently too, and referenced Sanok. The only reason that Squamish Nation and West Bank can propose a six thousand unit development on eleven acre site is because we have done the analysis that shows that the mar- there's a market for that, that there's a demand for that. Um, the 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 rental vacancy rate kind of shows that, and so. We, we've pushed the limits on the density as far as we can go. That was actually at the request of the nation. Um, there's a point where you can't build and you can, there's a point where you, there's, there's not enough land to build, um, as much as possibly can because there are engineering restrictions, transportation restrictions, um, movement of people restrictions that you just actually can't, like we can't do 50,000 people, 50,000 units on the site because, uh, the engineering requirements, the transportation requirements, the amount of ways to get in and out of there just doesn't allow for it. So there's a, there's a limit. We've pushed it to that limit. And the only reason we've pushed it to the limit is because that's what the physical lands will allow, but also that's what the market wants. So, you know, I think to, to uh, Tom's point, like if there was a redesign of how the city is currently zoning at the vast majority of the city, you would see a significant amount of more development happening, but you would also probably see a significant drop in prices over time because um, you would just be adding so much supply um, that there would be a, a larger competition for those units, whether it's rental or whether it's uh, uh, condos or, or other types of, of, of um, property. So <clears throat> I would say that there's going to be a lot of excitement around the project, a lot of interest around the project in terms of its impact. 
I would say that we are doing something for the city because that the city seems unable to do because of the politics around land use. Right. Um, we are providing around 6,000 units of housing over a very short period of time. The vast majority of them are going to be rental. And the city of Vancouver struggles to build even 1,000 units of rental. And we're going to be providing about 5,000 um, over the same time period. When the city knows um, that we actually need around 30,000 units of rental built over that time period. So I think that we are doing something for the city. We are showing a way to do city building and perhaps also showing a lot of city residents around the benefits of, of this type of development and perhaps breaking up the conversation a little bit that there is a assumption that most people aren't in favor of a significant amount of real estate. The reality is that there is a lot of polling out there that shows that uh, people are actually fine with an increased level of density. When you get into the very tall towers, there is less support. But when you get into the five to ten story um, range, there's a significant amount of support. But the political perception is that there's an organized resistance to this level of density. And there is a lack of willingness by our political leaders to go against the opinions of a small group of, of local um, voices um, and to recognize the benefits that need to be provided to the wider city. And, you know, our our hearing process and our um, engagement process on, on land use is just so bad, uh, broken um, and archaic to the needs of, of our city today and also to the um, types of people who are privileged to participate in those processes. So I think the lack of city control um, on the density is an opportunity for us to really possibly break the ceiling on that whole discourse around this conversation around housing development and land use. And there's a whole bunch of other things that are at play too. It's not just about build, baby, build. It's also about like responsible land use planning. It's also about building um, really healthy, equitable, safe communities. Um, and it's really about responding to the crisis by providing solutions that are going to benefit those who are directly impacted by the crisis. And then I think the other piece is it's also really about the public uh, as represented by the city, because we elect our, our city government, the public benefiting from the land value increases that the public is thereby granting to the land. Uh, when you install a school next to a development or you put a SkyTrain next to a development, the land values go up. And that is something that is created by our community. And so the community should definitely benefit from that to the maximum um, amount possible. So I think those are the issues. I think it's just about how do you show benefit? And I think with Sanak, um, there is a very clear narrative for, I think, a lot of people to understand, which is a local First Nation is doing a massive real estate project who are going to use 100% of the profits to benefit a marginalized community. There's a very clear story there, and I think people get that. It is a very different story than, say, a private developer is wanting to build 6,000 units so that they can become richer. I think that there is an a understandable um, discomfort with that narrative versus the narrative that the Squamish Nation is proposing. So I think that the, these are, again, I think that we are prototyping uh, a type of development that I think shifts the conversation around real estate within Vancouver. Yeah, it's it does seem like it's in, it's such a unique 
circumstance that I, yeah, undoubtedly there will be a lot of people watching, a lot of kind of academic uh, watching for sure. Um, you know, you're, you've paired up with, with West Bank um, for this project. Why West Bank? And, and maybe, you know, West Bank's known uh, for doing really kind of luxury uh, type product. Is it, can you talk a little bit about, about the kind of level of finishes, not even in the units, but say, you know, often people talk about, say, the chandelier under the Granville Bridge, of course, with Vancouver House, which was a West Bank project. Can you talk about why you teamed up with West Bank and, and uh, what, uh, what does it merit? Sure. Um, so the, the process that the nation went through to get to this point was that we actually did a request for proposal to a number of developers within the city of Vancouver. We sent an invite to over 20 developers to bid on a partnership with the Squamish Nation where, whereby we would provide the land and uh, they would provide the uh, guarantee on the financing and the project management uh, um, experience, and we would split the profits fifty-fifty, um, which is which is quite unusual as as in terms of a partnership deal. Um, the fact that the nation is not required to come up with a single dollar on the financing is huge. Uh, West Bank would would be a hundred percent responsible for that. You know, most other developers um, aren't interested in taking on that much risk. They would normally, in a 50-50 partnership, require the other partner to secure, you know, the other half of of the financing. So on an estimated $3 billion construction uh, project, that would normally be, you know, $1.5 billion each. Um, but the nation, because of the limitations of our structure as a First Nations government, um, and our inability over, or the, the way that we have been alienated from our lands to accumulate capital, um, we just don't have the kind of clout to accumulate or to um, secure that type of financing. West Bank can; um, they've done projects um, that, where they can they can prove themselves out on that way. So that, that's a part of it. But we went to the market. We did an RFP. A number of, of developers put in their bids. Um, the bids were analyzed. There was uh, meetings with each of the developers to understand their work and their, their relationship and the type of relationship that they might want to have with the nation. And through that competitive process, uh, West Bank was the most successful company to make it through. Um, and so that didn't mean that they were automatically in. It just meant that, okay, now let's walk down the aisle, so to speak, because um, we're going to be looking at doing a 50-50 partnership. Let's walk down the aisle before we get married. We still haven't actually gotten married in that sense. We haven't signed a master development agreement that's still being negotiated. We are still in uh, conversations with them, but we are in conversations with them while we are simultaneously uh, working on agreements with the City of Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, Vancouver Parks Board, Vancouver School Board, um, and then also at the same time securing the financing. So there's a number of things that are happening in tandem, um, but we we have chosen West Bank um, because of their experience within the industry, their success in the industry, their ability to do complex partnerships. Um, they've done a number of complex partnerships already. Um, and, and then also, I think the general kind of philosophy of West Bank that we've really responded to, which is that West Bank understands that 
intention of the nation is to eventually be strong enough to do this on our own. We have, this is a, about a 10 acre site in the city of Vancouver. We have another 100 acres on the North Shore that are, are potential lands for economic development of real estate. And the nation doesn't want to do 50-50 partnerships forever. We want to use this to get the leverage that we need to accumulate the capital that we need and the experience that we need so that we can start doing developments on our own. Uh, and I think West Bank understands that and they actually really support um, basically creating a comp- competitor in some ways um, and really support the nation's dream to to build that capacity on our own. Um, and so there is a lot of, I would say, philosophical alignments there um, and, and mixed with the experience um, and capacity that West Bank brings to the table. Kel Salem, what can we expect in terms of timelines? Um, I would say that there's probably going to be some major announcements in the fall of this year. Um, the goal is to move into construction sometime early next year. Um, wow. Yeah. And and I guess it sounds like it's in terms of this, exactly how many would be strata uh, units is still uh, in the works, but it doesn't sound like there's a pre-selling process. It sounds like you guys are moving right to to building. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the the there's a phased approach. There's five phases to the development, and so we would make choices as each phase moves into construction on what the unit mix would be in terms of strata versus rental. Um, and and like and the other part of it too is that the taller towers are kind of phase four, or phase five. Um, which is where most of the strata would be anyways. So it's it's a little bit more of, of we're going to see where the market's at at the time. Um, and that also means that the development timeline is also going to be dictated by the market. So do we get the whole thing done in five month, uh, five years or do we get it done in 10? Um, that'll depend a lot on what the market conditions are at the time. Right. Um, but there is a bit of a phased approach. So, you know, two towers, smaller towers first, and then we continue on to the next phase, next phase, next phase. Do, do you have a duration of the lease for the uh, Strata leasehold component? Yes. Uh, we've, we've, uh, the, our members agreed to a 120-year lease on the land. Okay. Um, that allows for a construction period and then the subleases under that. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Maybe uh, as a final question here, Kel Salem, uh, how does this does this project uh, kind of more broadly tie in with re- uh, reconciliation? Um, in some ways, I, I I think it's important to be clear. In some ways, that it doesn't, and, and it shouldn't be considered reconciliation because uh, I'll use the city of Vancouver for example. Um, the city of Vancouver did not do anything to help us get the land back. They did not give us any land back, and they have not given uh, us any kind of uh, compensation for all the land that we've lost or any of the land that they've been occupying and generating billions of dollars off over the last 150 years. So the city of Vancouver signing a service agreement with us is not reconciliation. Right. There is nothing that the city of Vancouver is doing that is fundamentally changing who they are and what they do and how they are restoring um, wealth and capacity to you know the indigenous people that they've taken our resources from and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's important to recognize that just because indigenous people are involved doesn't mean it's reconciliation. I would say that there is um, work that has been done by the city of Vancouver, both at the political level and at the staff level, where it has been around attitude change and around 
philosophy change and around um, behavioral change in terms of how city staff in, uh, work on a project like this and how they perceive a project like this. Um, I think that a lot of that work where the city of Vancouver has gone through their own transformation has been reconciliation work. And I think that that's been really important. So, for example, the city to come to the table and say, we want to now give back to the nation because we have not been, a, been, been great at that in the past. And so we are going to work very hard to support this project in a way that we would, we would never for any other developer. Because this isn't about a private developer wanting to develop something on on city um, or on lands within the city's jurisdiction. This is a situation where a neighboring government wants to do something, and them as a neighboring government um, are going to work with us on a government to government relationship uh, and level. So I think that's an example of where the reconciliation work is showing up. I think within the public. Uh, there is also the similar kind of work of attitude change, philosophy change, where I think the general public could look at a project like this and see themselves as perhaps shifting their own perception of their own attitudes around Indigenous people and how Indigenous peoples can succeed. And, you know, I think that, you know, I've seen it, some of the comments where people have said, and I've said it too, the, the city of Vancouver has developed all over our land the, uh, many people have made significant amounts of profit off of our land as speculators um, for 150 years, not just recently. And the city of Vancouver has collected all kinds of taxes, levies, development fees, community amenity contributions um, for over 150 years and has accumulated billions of dollars and spent billions of dollars because of that. And none of that, none of that has been. Um, got given back to our community and, and benefited our community. So I, I think that there is an opportunity to see this as, yeah, this this nation should benefit from something that we've all benefited from already. You know, there's all kinds of towers that have already been built within our territory. We didn't have a say over that. We were not consulted um, when those towers went in or when the city government made billions of dollars off of those towers. And so I think in some ways the tables have turned and I think there's an opportunity for people to recognize that, yeah, there, this is an opportunity for the nation to succeed uh, in a way that the rest of us have been succeeding already for many for over a hundred years. Well, maybe we'll leave it there, uh, Kel Salem, but can, we do have this segment called the five wire, five quick questions. Uh, can you stick around for that? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So question number one is uh, what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? My favorite neighborhood, honestly, is Strathcona. Oh, interesting. I, live, I, th- I, I th- live there. It's one of my favorites. Oh, I live there as well. Nice. Yeah. Um, I thought you would have had to say kids. No. <laughs> I mean, give me, give me 10 years and I'll ask me <laughs> Favorite bar or restaurant? Uh, there's a little bar in just outside of Chinatown uh, on Main Street called Boxcar. And, uh, oh yeah, that's one of my favorites. That's a great one. It, it reminds me of like a New York bar, style bar, like oh, the long, narrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. That's a good totally. one. Um, one book that you would recommend that everybody read? Um, there's a book by a uh, Métis mm-hmm. author, Chelsea Bowell, called Indigenous Rights. It's spelled W R I T E S. Um, Indigenous Rights. It's like a one-on-one book on Indigenous history in Canada, but it's written in a very 
uh, almost sarcastic, but like funny and irreverent style. So it's very approachable. It's very funny. Um, it's not very academic. Um, it's a pretty enjoyable read. And I think it's one of the must read books that every Canadian should read. Oh, fantastic. One piece of advice you would give your 18 year old self. Um, I was thinking about this question. I think the honest answer is I wish I came out of the closet sooner. <laughs> um, I did that last year, and I think one of my big regrets in life is I didn't do that sooner, so that's my honest answer. That's a good answer. Um, something that you have purchased for under $1,000 that's changed your life. Oh, man, this one is – I really struggled to figure this one out. Um, I think it might have been uh, – yeah, I think I, 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 I've been I, – been a when I was younger, I, I really got involved with canoeing uh, and participating in, in canoe journeys, um, seagoing canoe journeys, um, which is a cultural practice in my community. And uh, I think when I was really young, I purchased my first paddle, and uh, I think doing that uh, is something that changed my life. Wow, that's a really good, good answer. Well, well, thanks so much, Cal Salem, for for your time, and that was a yeah, really interesting conversation, and uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, and I, I know that uh, our listeners are going to learn a ton about uh, well, not only uh, not only the Sanaklans, but also Squamish Nation, and 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 Cal Salem. How can people find out more about what you guys are doing, the project, um, Squamish Nation, anything that you're doing yourself? Yeah, um, there's a snock.com, which is a website that will be that has some content on it, and it, it'll be continually updated as the project moves forward. Um, Squamish.net, the website for the Squamish Nation, um, is also constantly adding more content, and we're going to be updating that website soon as well. So um, I would say those are the kind of main places to check out. Right on. Well, thanks again for your time, and uh, and good luck with the project, by the way. Thank you. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Kel Salem from the Squamish Nation. Yeah, Matt, really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, very interesting, and I can't wait to kind of watch this uh, unfold. And, it, you know, I, I'm really hoping that we learn a lot about what's actually possible in terms of creating density in the city of Vancouver and also what's possible in terms of creating purpose-built rental. Yeah, I feel like this is the type of project that's going to – it's like dropping a bomb on the city, right? Because in, in a lot of ways, it's it's going to change the course. It will, uh, yeah. And it's going to be really interesting to watch yep. and uh, really exciting stuff. Before we cut for the day though, Matt, um, I just want to remind everybody – if you are thinking of selling this year, we do have the sold plan. It is available for free. It's our gift to you. You can send an email to info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And uh, sold stands for start on launch day. And that's patented. That is patent pending. This is a pending, compre- pending. comprehensive plan. And uh, we can't wait for you to actually get your hands on it. It is a great one. And if sending an email is too much, you can always just head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is where we have our back catalog and tons of resources for buyers and sellers, resources like private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using private client services, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by, you get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information at your fingertips. I'm gonna. I'm just going to also say to sellers, like, if you have this, you now know what your neighbors are selling for, and we can actually set up a specific search that actually maps around your property, so you'll know within a square kilometer what your neighbors are selling for. That's right, or just your building. 
Exactly. I mean, it's it's very it's very it's specific. comprehensive. What it's we comprehensive can do. and specific. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's both. But <laughs> that's terrific. That's that's it. That's at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also have the live wire. That's our email list where we're sending out weekly emails, stats, yes, deal of the month. If you want to talk about this or anything else, you can try me at 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that secret line, info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Yeah, and I think we should start calling him DJ Secret because uh, the secret's out. He's uh, He's got some really, really great finds for instrumental uh, old school hip hop. Yeah, well, for listings, right? Because yeah. we do listing videos for each of our listings. And, and it uh, turns out that 80s and 90s rap is a lot better than elevator music to go through a property. I in. feel like Secret is literally with a pen and a pad in in the yeah. lab, which yeah. is his basement. <laughs> haven't yeah, seen just, him for months. Haven't seen him for months. He's just going through old samples. Watching watching Jordan documentaries and, and finding the best tunes for listings. Yeah. But, uh, Anyways, you can check out those listings that are on our site, scalingrealestate.com. Yeah. But really... Uh, it's it's pretty great, and I'm excited what you come up with next there, uh, Secret. <laughs> All right. Have a good week, guys, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Take care. Get, get, get down. Uh. 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 New York streets will kill us a walk like Pistol Pete and Pappy Mason. Gave the young boys admiration. Prince from Queens and Fritz from Harlem. Street legends. The drugs kept the hood from starving. Pushing cars, Nicky Bars was the 70s, but there's a long... 2000 Faces for Radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate 
or volunteer and they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers, that's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.